Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. So, I was actually DJing at a party where a guy had just got shot in front of the party. Lead the party. I get around to my house. This car pulls up. I refuse to make the transaction. Mm -hmm. Two guys I don't know. We already, you know, this whole shooting other situation, that escalates into an argument. Threats exchange back and forth. I'm literally turning to walk in the house. Sounds like to me is the car door opening. Mm -hmm. I turn and fire four shots, tragically end the man's life. Damn. Um, A 30 second decision can cost you the rest of your life. In prison, or it can cost you death, whatever the case may be. Right. But it's something I live with forever, bro. Like, it's it's nothing like, even though I, I get in these spaces and I talk about, like, the healing part, you know, and, and you know, even when we talk, you know, growing up in the hood and being the goon and being a gangster, yeah. when you emotionally evolve and you realize the devastating impact that your action had on a family right. and on a community, right. it's nothing gangster about that. I'm a diverse individual. All of this shit is real. Everybody like, ah, what is it? Is he a family man? Is he a trapper? Is he a ladies man? Well, I'm all of it. All of it. I beat your ass, kiss your girl, and go tuck my kids in. And then I show up and lead a march on the weekend. <laughs> it's all real. Real, real. This is Expeditiously. I am Tilt T.I. Uh-huh. Now, the following experience is not a test. The conversations and stories expressed on this podcast are meant to be an expression of purpose and truth. This show, properly entitled Expeditiously, is a free exchange of ideas and opinions. No judgment, no preconceived beliefs, no fear. You're encouraged to share your thoughts and ask any question as long as it's done with respect. And that's through true love and respect for others that we will change the world and speak truth to power, one show at a time. Now, without further ado, this is Expeditiously. I'm Tip T.I. Harris. Yes. Now, my next guest is a leading voice in criminal justice reform and a senior fellow with the Dream Corps. Uh, he served 19 years in Michigan Department of Correction, including more than five years in solitary confinement. Yeah, total of seven altogether. Sheesh. Don't feel sorry for him because he's probably one of the most successful at taking a negative and turning it into a positive. After his release, he penned a memoir entitled Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison, which debuted on the New York Times bestseller list as well as the Washington Post bestseller list. He is an author, speaker, mentor, and a community leader. He was named to Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of visionaries and influential leaders. Please help me welcome to Expeditiously, Mr. Shaka Senghor. Man, thanks for having me, bro. What's going on, bro? Oh, man, honored to be here. Man, I appreciate you for coming. Uh, we just met in, you know, the past week or so. We was on a panel together, me, you, and Charlemagne. Yes, sir. Uh, we were talking about, you know, prison reform and how to address the epidemic, or you know, that that exists in our country today. And you have a very interesting perspective uh, on on the approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is really one of the um, most important human rights uh, conversations that we should be having, especially for those who come from inner city communities, you know, the hip hop culture. Um, and sadly, we just haven't had it at this massive scale. And I think one of the things that 
is often missed in the conversation, especially now that it's ramping up and it's become kind of like the thing, right? Right. Is we talk about bringing people home, which is super important, but we're not really talking about how to bring them home healthy and whole. Right. And ensuring that people aren't going back for all these trivial uh, ways, you know, means that they go back for. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think, okay, let's start with, 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 with the backstory. Yeah. So, so you were born and raised in Detroit, right? Yeah, what up, though, Detroit? <laughs> sure. Okay, so what, what part exactly? Yeah, so I originally grew up on the east side of Detroit um, all the way up until I was, like, in about 14 or 15, then I moved to the west side. So right. I'm officially good in any hood. You That's know, I right. stayed on both sides of town. got... Friends and family on both sides of town. Um, but I grew up in a household that on the outside looking in looked like the model for, you know, working class America. You know, my right. father was in the Air Force. My mother was primarily a homemaker. And unfortunately, as is the case in a lot of instances, you know, I, my mother was also abusive. Um, mm. And my father was complicit in that. And so when I was around 14, I decided to run away. And, you know, I, I thought what I thought would happen, this was, and this was like the beginning of the crack epidemic. You okay. know, this is like 86. So, gotcha. um, you know, what I thought would happen was somebody would see this young kid with all this potential and take me in. Mm. But unfortunately, like that happens all too often. No more seasoned street hustlers like, yo, you know, here's a way to you provide a means for yourself. And that's right. how I got introduced to the crack cocaine uh, trade at the age of 14. Right. I mean, Detroit, man, you know what I'm saying? It's one of the realest places to grow up, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different animal, you know. I, 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 it's crazy because I travel all over the country now, and right. I go to different communities. They be like, "Let me take you to the hood," and I'll be like, "Oh, this the hood." <laughs> like uh, it's a little, it's a little different, you know. And I mean, but the other part of Detroit that's really dope is its contribution to American culture. You know, right. you got car culture and sure, sure. legendary Motown. But I mean, it's definitely a city of hustlers. You know, people who got that grit to figure out, you know, how to make things happen, even when yeah. everything don't look like it's possible. I mean, we spoke a lot about, you know, the trauma of growing up in certain lifestyles and certain environments. Like, would you say that, you know, you grew up angry? Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, you know, going through the, the abuse, but when I got caught up in the street culture, like within the first six months of being within that culture, my childhood friend was murdered. Damn. I was robbed at gunpoint. I was beaten nearly to death at one time. And I remember... Like laying on the on a you know cold bathroom floor in the back of this crack house and just thinking to myself like, what type of world do we live in where people will literally beat a kid to death? You know, how and old were you then? I was like fourteen. Damn. You know? But despite that, I found myself still deeply entrenched in the culture. And then about three years later, I got shot multiple times. And it's one of the things that you know when we're talking about criminal justice, we can't talk about that without talking about PTSD. Like in my right. family, about eight of us have been shot. And about six of us have been to prison for various uh, levels of gun-related violence. Right. And so it's just a cycle that repeats itself. And, you know, when you're talking about a city where somebody gets literally killed every day, it's just, you know, the, you can't live in that community and grow up in that community without being impacted by those levels of gun violence. Yeah, I mean, why do you think so many of us, like, find solace, you know, in the streets? I think of it always as like looking for acceptance and the love that we don't think we're getting at home. Right. And part of part of what's really going on in our communities that we don't talk about, there's a lot of in-home trauma. Mm. And so, you know, we, we when we think about that, you know, the comedians, they laugh and joke about it, like, man, I remember my mama hit me with a, a bat or a pot and, you know, and, and the things that are uh, have been normalized in our community. So that ends up running a lot of kids to the streets and really... 
people end up banding together around their brokenness, you know. So if you got two broken people looking to fill that void, you know, that's how people start connecting. And so that's where that 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 part of the solace. But then the other part is the independence, you know, the ability to take care of yourself and a culture that's constantly telling you that you don't belong. And so when you get in that environment where you can actually make your own money and make your own way, it's hard to turn that off once you've been exposed to it. Yeah, I mean, man, you have a very interesting story, not because you went to prison. Uh, It's more about, you know, what you took away from that experience and how you applied it. You know what I'm saying? Especially given, like, how much solitary confinement you actually had to endure like seven years is the majority of a decade. So mm-hmm. in solitary confinement for that long, like what how do you how do you process that? Like what did how did yeah. you make it through and still keep your wits? Yeah, I mean, you know, when people hear my story, they don't really understand the beginning of my story. Like I didn't start off as like one of the model prisoner type of guys, man. Right. Like, you know, I went in, my first prison was Michigan Reformatory. It's called the Gladiator School. Yeah. Later the first week I'm in there, a guy gets stabbed in the neck on the steps as we walk in the child. And I knew in that moment that, you know, I had to make a decision. Either you're going to be a lion or you're going to be a lamb in here. Yeah. And so the first five years of my incarceration, I got into every type of trouble you can think of. And while I was getting in that trouble, man, I was fortunate to meet, like, real OGs, like, real uh, brothers, real men. And what I mean by, by OGs, because that name is used so freely, you it's know, in our culture. Around. Yeah, it's tossed around without people really earning that, right? Yeah. And these are men who learn from the wisdom, you know, the wisdom from their mistakes and poor decision-making, and they were seeking to impart that on, you know, younger brothers coming through. And at the time, like, when they was coming to me like, you know, yo, you, bro, you, you can do it a different way. You're going to get out. I mean, I'm 19 looking at the next two decades of my life. I can't even see that far down right. in my future, but they had the wisdom to see that. And so, you know, they started feeding me books, man, and I started off reading Iceberg Slim, Donald Goins. Yeah. And, of course, reading Malcolm, which to me I think is the most iconic book, you know, on prison transformation uh, known to man. And so getting exposed to literature early on prepared me on how to survive and how to manage uh, the environment in a way that was designed to break me, you know. So I remember reading this book called Cages of Steel, and there was a psychologist who explained, like, exactly what happens to the human mind when you're in that environment. Mm. And he talks about how the longer you keep a person in there, they'll start uh, hallucinating and they'll stop being able to communicate effectively. And so going in with that understanding of what the environment was designed to do allowed me to kind of check myself. And the other part, man, it was just really being exposed to literature of resilient people, you know, reading Nelson Mandela and Asada Shakur and, you know, all these people who have been through, you know, extreme levels of adversity and who have found a way to navigate that. So whenever I find myself, you know, going through the moments of feeling vulnerable, you know, I grabbed Nelson Mandela and just started reading, you know, his story and understanding that he stood in this space with dignity despite the fact that they was trying to crush his humanity. Right. Uh, long walk to freedom, is absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. Man, I mean, now, you've been intro- introduced to literature uh, so early on in your sentence. Do you think your, your, your perspective on the things you've read contributed to you be, being an author? Yeah, absolutely. So read, reading those books early on, it wasn't until I was in solitary confinement and I was really confronting what my life had become. Right. And one day, it just kind of occurred to me, I was sitting there, an officer came to my door, and I remember talking to this guy about something really basic. 
And mm. I mean, this guy was like a babbling idiot, you mm-hmm. know. And I don't, I don't generalize people because I think that's unfair. Right. But this specific guy yeah. was a babbling idiot. And I said to myself, "How is somebody who's intellectually inferior to me controlling my life?" Yeah. And that challenged me to really start thinking about my life differently. And then I ended up getting this letter from my son. And he was probably around 10, 11 at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and he wrote me and he was like, my mama told me why you were in prison for murder. And it was something about reading those words from my son and knowing that not only had I forfeited my responsibility to him as a father, but also in his eyes, I was a monster. Mm. So I wasn't the street tough, you know, street savvy prison yard boss that right. I fancied myself to be. Right. In his eyes, I was a monster. And I knew as a man that that was a horrible legacy to leave as a father and what that did is it made me ask myself these tough questions like, you know, why haven't you stepped up to the plate to change outcomes? Sure. And so what I did is I challenged myself. I said, look, first of all, you need to understand how you got here. So I started writing this journal and started going back and really going back into all the things that had happened, the PTSD, all these things. And then I realized through that process that I had never accomplished anything in my life. And so I challenged myself to write a book in 30 days. And the reason I challenged myself to write a book in 30 days is because I needed to prove to myself that I can complete something. Right. You know, I grew up, grew up through that cycle of, like, every time I got caught up, this the last time. I ain't going back. I ain't doing this. And I always was starting stuff but never finishing. Mm. And so for me, I was like, if I'm really sincere about this transformation and that I want to honor my responsibility as a father by giving my son an example of fatherhood that he can be proud of, then I got to complete something. Right. And so I wrote my first book in 30 days. And it wasn't like, I didn't have like a typewriter or a laptop. Pen in solitary. Paper. You know that little plastic yeah. pen they give you in, in solitary, right? Yeah. I took that and rolled it up in paper. And I wrote for 30 days straight. I'm talking about from the time I woke up mm. to the time my eyes was just burning at night. And so when I wrote that first book, I felt this complete level of just fulfillment that I had never felt. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I can contribute something meaningful to the world. Sure. And then I was like, you know, it's cool that you do something once. Anybody can do something good once. But um, the mark of greatness is the ability to do it over and over. Right. And so I wrote that second book, and then I started a third book, and I fell into a deep bout of depression. And it's one of the things when I'm mentoring young guys, I tell them about prison. You come from the hood, you can survive prison. You can scrap. You've probably been scrapping your whole life. Sure. You know, you might shank a cat or two, so you can survive that part, right? What is devastating is when you wake up one day and realize your own potential and realize that you're wasting it. And so for me, when I realized that, it was the most depressing experience I had. And so I went through that depression for a while, and then I just had this moment where I was like, you know, in in, in adverse circumstance, you got to make a decision about who you really are and who you want to evolve to. And I was like, you know what, I can't quit on me, you know. So I kept writing. I got out of solitary, tightened my books up, and I literally would send my books out, man, to random publishers. You know, I didn't know nothing about the publishing industry, and I never would hear back from them. And one day, instead of just giving up, I bought a book on self-publishing, taught myself how to self-publish, published my first book from prison in 2008. Mm-hmm. And right after I published the book, I got sued by the Department of Corrections for the cost of my incarceration. Damn. It's crazy. So they <laughs> <laughs> sued me for like a million dollars, bro. Did, did they win? No. So so technically, they won a lawsuit. I didn't have I didn't have the money to give them. But right. 
what I did is I backdated a contract to myself mm-hmm. saying that I would only accept 10% of the proceeds once the company recouped its production costs. Right. And the lawsuit was only binding as long as I was in prison, so I just made sure I didn't make no money right. until I got out. So they sense. technically didn't get a dime, but, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, just that's crazy, man, to set up this big elaborate scheme, you know, to catch people in the sling of law. Yeah. Just... To lock them up, make them work for cheap labor, and should they find a way to make a way for themselves, you sue them. <laughs> yeah, man. And it, you know what was crazy? For money they've yeah. never even seen before. Yeah. And what was crazy about it is I had this moment where that old narrative came back. Man, these people ain't going to let me make it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to do that self-check of, like, you know, this is just one more obstacle in life. You either go around it, go under it, go through it, but you still have to decide whether you want it to defeat you or not. Like, that's a choice, right? And so I was like, you know what? I'm smarter than these people anticipated, so I knew a little bit about the law. That's why I did the contract. But what it did, man, is it strengthened my resolve to make it because it set me up for life when I got out. And I knew uh, early on that it was going to be a process, you know, mm-hmm. that I was going to have to get out and make it happen. And, and, and honestly, I just, I want to salute you as, as one of the many brothers within the industry who i model what I do with books off of what y'all was doing with hip hop. And thanks. I honestly appreciate, you know, the, the sense of ownership, you know, the independence. And so basically what I did, I was like, you know, I, I hustled in the streets my whole life. You know yeah. what I mean? And I'm like, if I can make money in, in, in this industry, in the streets, and I got a legitimate product, I'm going to take that same mentality and incorporate that into how I move with books. And so what I did, I invested my own money, bought books for the low, $2 a book, sold them for 15 a pop. Right. And when I walked out the door, the first thing I did, uh, outside of what was the obvious expectation, <laughs> right? <laughs> but literally the first thing I did uh, was sold a book in the parking lot of the parole office, and I ain't stopped selling books then, since then. It's, Going on ten years now. That's fine, man. So yeah. you so three books total. No, I wrote a total of six. I I self published four. Okay. What a lot of people don't know about writing my wrongs, I originally self published that book. Okay. I ended up getting a, a book deal and getting mainstream publishing after I got interviewed by Oprah. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> which was a wild scenario, you know what I mean? So, but I mean, yeah. like as, as much as you care to discuss, absolutely. How you go from selling your first book in the parole? Uh, office to sitting down with Oprah. So, you know, again, going back to that street model, so moving around a lot of my younger years, I learned networking. and I learned the right. value of your network. So I can move in any neighborhood based on the network I had, right? Sure. And so when I started selling books, I knew coming home, I could just move anywhere and just go talk to people when I had people in different areas. So start off, I'm talking about hitting the barbershops, hair salons, I mean, I'm talking about strip clubs. Cabarets, wherever people were at, I was at with books. Uh, hospital. Sometimes I was just like roll through there with a duffel bag of books, right. shopping mall. I roll up on people like, "Yo, get this book, right?" <laughs> and then I would set up like local book signings, right? And like fifteen people would show up, twenty right. people, thirty people, and the they book people up. would be like, "Oh, that's a lot of people." In my mind, I'm like, "Yo, this ain't turning over fast enough." And one time I got invited to speak, and it was a room of like a hundred or so people. Mm-hmm. And I sold more books than I sold setting up the book signing. So I switched the model. I was like, if I can book more speaking gigs, I can sell more books. So I went from literally selling, you know, fifteen, you know, fifteen books at a bookstore to selling a hundred, then two hundred and three hundred books. Um, and like even when I put writing my wrongs out, I, I literally did the book release at the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit. 
And I remember the lady saying, well, you know, books sell, you know, books don't do too well in this space, right? I literally had 400 people turn out to the book center. I'm literally hustling both sides of town, passing off flyers. Me, my, me and my ex, who's the mother of my son, we grinding, my team, my friends. Um, and so what happened with, with, with Oprah was I was speaking at an event. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the list of people who was there. And I, don't, I didn't know a lot of them. They all seem really important. <laughs> and so I told my partner, I was like, yo, I think I should send like 100 books to this event. Mm. And she was like, no, we don't even, like, we really ain't even had no money in account, you know. Mm. And so on the books, 100 books was like 2500 which is when you broke, it's a lot of cash, yeah, right? Yeah. And I was like, you just got to trust me on, like, trust my instinct on this. And so against her judgment, I sent the books out for free when it spoke. And literally months later, I get this call. Oprah wants to interview you. What? And first I was like, yo, that's crazy, yo. Like, <laughs> Oprah, right? Uh, but turns out one of the women there gave her the original book. So when you watch the interview, she doesn't have the book that's on the shelf now. Okay. She got the Out the Trunk joint. What? Which is like one the of my proudest moments, the, the self-published, self-published one. And she, and she tells the story of being 60 pages in is like, I want to interview this guy. Wow. And her and I had an interview. We were scheduled for 45 minutes. We talked for three and a half hours straight. Dope. And became real friends. Dope. And she's been so inspired by my work and who I am and how I show up in the world. And she started incorporating that into, like, some of her art. Um, Queen Sugar, if you know the character, I know the audience, know uh, Ralph Angel. Uh-huh. In the original pilot, he wasn't formally incarcerated. mm and so for me, like that shows the power of art where you can really start telling these stories in the way and incorporate it in, a, in an organic way. And then also was a consulting producer on one of her shows called Release. So uh, Oprah's definitely super dope, man. But that that moment of driving up to her home, like she did, the interview was in her home. Damn. Like it wasn't at a studio. It was like literally in her Oprah home, right? In, Oprah invited an ex-con into her personal in her home, living bro. space. Yeah, literally in her home. That's all right, yeah, man. Yeah, no, it was super dope, man. And I, I just remember that moment, though, of driving through the gates. And for me, what it did is it validated what I knew to be my purpose as a storyteller and as a writer. Because when I, when I started writing, I didn't want to be just a good writer for somebody who happened to be incarcerated. Yeah. I want to be one of the best, period. And that was the my aspiration came while I was in solitary, right? I wrote the first book, and the guy was like, you know, I'm asking the brothers, y'all want to read this? And the brother was like, man, don't nobody want to read that shit? This ain't Oprah's Book Club. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't get to the cat. We in the cell, right? So I'm like, okay, I, instead of being getting really mad, this is my first goal. Right. Get Oprah to read one of my books. So right. I literally wrote all my goals down. Oprah to read a book, New York Times bestseller, turned it into TV shows, movies, et cetera. Right. And I started writing down goals for my life. And I basically have checked off pretty much all of those goals since I've been out. Man, that is extremely important, the law of attraction. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? What you put out into the universe, it will return back to you Absolutely. one way or the other. Now, another thing that you, know, another thing that you pointed out... Um, when we were when we were talking before is I mean how if you made it through living through through life in the hood that you can survive in prison absolutely and that's very important because it's extremely true yeah. but it ra- it raises the question why is it because we've been we're being conditioned for prison as soon as we're born absolutely you know I yeah. think that has a lot 
that said, that holds a lot of weight. That yeah. statement. I mean, it, it, and it's it's so sad but true. When I came home, so one of one of my other responsibilities outside is figuring out how to uh, make it on this side was mentoring. Right. And I remember walking into a high school that was in worse condition than any prison I've ever been in. Mm. And you could see the police-like state and the uniforms and the, and, the, and the actual security guard with the same kind of correctional officer uniforms. Yeah. And so very early on, you know, it's programmed into the culture like survival. And there's a big difference between survival and thriving. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I speak of guys being able to survive, I always tell, you know, the kids when I'm in, especially the kids in the tough school, like, look, your counterparts couldn't show up the way that you show up. And still be productive. Mm. So there's resiliency there, right? So the survival is really about being resilient. That's encoded in our DNA. Our ancestors had to survive for us to be here. Right on. Uh, circumstance was tough, you know, so that's embedded in our DNA. Sure. And, and when I share that with the young brothers, it's because I want to take that. Like, I don't believe in that scared straight model. Mm. Like, you can't scare a cat straight who's been on the block getting shot at with a chopper. Yeah. Like, come on, bro. You can't scare them straight. So I believe in loving them straight. And part of that is being honest with them. Like, if you're resilient... You know, that's built into who you are. Right. You'll survive that environment physically, you know, but psychologically it's devastating what it does to you and how it changes you as a human being into this very primal, animalistic way of thinking. Like when I first hit the yard, I I mean, I can show you this picture, bro, of like the difference between my eyes when I was in there and where I'm at today. Right. You know, and it's just a survival mechanism, you know. And so once I got out of that survival loop, and I was like, yo, I can actually thrive, mm. but I got to put the work in. And I mean, I'm, I mean, I read constantly, like nonstop. I'm, a, I'm an avid lover of books. You know, I trained myself as a writer, self-taught. I didn't have a co-author, and you know, again, I was inspired by the things that I, that lifted me up while I was in there. You know, listening to music when we were fortunate enough to get it, mm-hmm. like that, that saved my life. You know, being able to laugh with the brothers who were great storytellers and yeah. great thinkers and strategists. Uh, without those brothers, you know, we don't survive. So to me, you know, it's not about celebrating the fact that we can survive because that's really the sad part of it. Yeah. It's survival is necessary, but it's not the holy grail of what it means to be human. And thriving is more optimal, you know. Right. And so for me, it's like going through that. I knew that coming out on the other side that I want to thrive, bro. Like I don't I don't want to live uh, uh, um, a marginalized existence, you know. And that's what the system is trained for us to do. Like when I came home, they was like, yeah, just get a job in, you know, at the local gas station, you know, <laughs> under the table because they're not even going to hire you legitimately, right? Right. Like, that's not the life for me. That's like a prison in itself. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And to me, freedom, like, happened in my mind well before I walked out them doors. You right. know, reading books like As a Man Think of Think and Grow Rich. Uh, you know, all the masterful thinkers around mental liberation. So, like, that's what I try to exhibit to, you know, my mentees as well as my uh, young son. I think, I mean... I think that's 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 astronomical that you could pull that out. Like you know, what I'm saying being in very dark spaces, mm-hmm. you know, one of two things are going to happen. Absolutely, either you will succumb to the darkness, or you will find a beacon of light. Absolutely, you know what I mean. Um, so tell me, what the hell did you do that led? To being in solitary confinement for seven years. Yeah, so so I did a total of seven years. I did four and a half years straight. 
So That's enough. Fir- yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the first couple of times was assault on other guys in a joint. Um, I tried to veer away from calling them inmates because they're still human beings. And Absolutely. Brothers and fathers and things like that. But I got into conflicts early on yeah. in my bid. But the longest stretch I did was from 1999 to 2004, and it was for assault on a staff member. Got you. Um, and so just to give some context, like I was – because I was highly literate and had the ability to communicate, I advocated a lot for justice inside prison, right? So right. I've been doing this work for a long time, social impact work in that environment, writing grievances for guys who couldn't read, mm-hmm. standing up when I knew injustice was happening and taking that risk of being like going to solitary. And so one time I actually was standing up for myself, me and this officer, we got into a conflict. A couple of days later, he approached me, you know, wouldn't allow me to use the restroom. And I basically asked my, you know, I was like, listen, there's one or two things going to happen here. One, either you want me to go back and, and dehumanize my bunkie by peeing out the window or whatever the case may be, or I'm using this bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to choose my humanity in every situation. Right? That's real. So I walked past the officer, and then on the way out, he confronted me. He actually put his hands on me first, and then um, I beat him, uh, and then he literally almost died. And they had to save his life in front of the unit. Um, and I and like that wasn't my intention, but that was those are just the facts of the case. So I was sentenced to an additional two years in prison, and ended up doing four and a half years in solitary. And the crazy thing is, like he violated every protocol. Right. First, he put his hands on me. Right. When I attempted to leave, he never pushed his personal protection device, which is to alert them that there is a conflict with a guy inside. Um, so he violated all the protocol. But despite all that, I still was found guilty because. You know, I'm a brother on lockdown, you know, but, yeah. you know, I remember my father writing me and I, and I, what I, you know, he wrote me and I was just like, you know, he was like, there's some things about prison that I'll never understand and I have to respect your decision. And I wrote my father back and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of this place. Mm. But what I do know is that every day that I wake up in here, I'm going to choose my humanity over anything before anything. Yeah. And if y'all have to go on with y'all life, then I understand because... That's just who I am as a person, you know. And so my father just, he a dope dude. You know, he was like, look, I can't tell you that I get it. I can even relate to it. But he like, I ain't going nowhere. You know mm. what I'm saying? And we're going to ride this out, whatever it has to be. So, um, you know, having that type of support from family, you know, specifically my father during that time in my life mm. was, like, crucial, you know, because right. it's hard when you have to make that decision on your humanity over the opportunity of losing the rest of your freedom. But to me, it's a choice I make every time. Man, I think you 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 bring up an excellent point of the importance of like a strong support system. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I think that so many of our brothers who get time, you know what I'm saying, they they lost and forgotten or at least if it, it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that there's been a a very intentional out of sight, out of mind kind of strategy. That's you, especially the feds. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like they try to make it more and more difficult for people to visit you to kind of divert them away from the thought or, yeah. you know, the idea of coming to see you. Um, I guess, like, what do you think? Like, what what are some cases? Because I saw some, and I wasn't, I wasn't there nearly as long as you, but what are some cases where – the lack of a support system really drove somebody over the edge. 
It's and a, it's important I say that absolutely. because people who are listening, everybody knows somebody who locked up. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Yes, Making them, but what they don't see is when they don't press five when the phone rings <sighs> or when they ain't, you know, sending in uh, pictures or just just continuing some level of a connection. Yeah. They don't see what happens on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's something I've given a lot of thought to. Um, anytime I'm traveling and I'm about water, Specifically on the East Coast when I'm by the Atlantic. Right. You know, I think about our ancestors who were stripped from the continent mm. and to lose connection with everything that you've known. And it happens for a lot of, you know, brothers and sisters who were actually the providers of their, for the, of their family. The patriarchs. The, the protectors, all the things, right? Sure. You know? And when you wake up and nobody's there and all the people that you thought loved you and cared about you. And they won't write you a letter. Mm. And they won't come visit you. Like, I, I went 17 years without seeing my mother. What? Um, and I remember when she came to see me after 17 years, my ex brought her up there. Mm. And I was just like, you know, and I was in a space of forgiveness, which I think is important because it was really about my own healing. Right. But I remember thinking to myself, like, there's nothing that my child can do that wouldn't warrant me coming to see them and visiting them, right? Sure. Um, and so w- what I'll say is that I've seen so many people lose it, man. Like, yeah. you know, when I mean, they're just hanging on because it's such an isolating place, even though it's so full of people, you know, and especially if you're trying to turn it around, and you're trying to figure it out and fix it. It reinforced the idea that you're not lovable, that you're not worthy, right. that, that you're not worthy of the sacrifice of somebody taking five minutes to write you a letter, right. taking a couple of minutes to send you a picture, taking a couple of dollars you know, that one drink you bought to buy at the club, right. you can send to your cousin or your brother, and you choose not to. Yeah. Um, and so, I, but on the flip side, I tr- I'm also sensitive to the families who struggle financially. $15 mean a lot to some families. Sure. But a stamp, you can get a stamp, you know. But I think sometimes it's the shame, it's the embarrassment that they feel of not knowing what to do. Mm. So we try to support that. I, I support so many of my guys in the joint, their families. More, right. I support their families almost more than I support them. Because sometimes they just need to talk. Like, right. is my baby going to be okay? You know, how's he doing, you know? And so, you know, I've watched so many brothers commit suicide, you know, um, end up on the med line. It's the saddest thing is when they call med line. Mm. And you see brothers you grew up with. And you see that they have got to that point where they broke down. Right. And the only way that they can cope is by getting, you know, medication. And if they're not getting it out the med line, they're taking it out the store. Right. You know, um, and, it's, and it's devastating, you know. And so I, I'm happy you brought that up, man, because that's an important part of when people come home. Yeah. You know, when I came home, it was interesting. I'm, and, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely mostly evolved and, and thought, you know, thought evolved on a lot of levels. So mm-hmm. I knew how important it was for me to forgive anybody who had abandoned me or who I felt like abandoned me. Mm-hmm. But I had these moments when I came home where – with my family, you know, and, and I got, I love my family, you know, right. But I would have moments when I would be around them and be like, man, I was in prison for 19 years. And when right. I pull up now, you like, Hey nephew. Hey cuz. Right. And I'm like, you didn't write me one letter. Wouldn't take a phone call. Right. And like just that jarring nature of how they reverted right back to the same love before I went to the joint as if the 20 years didn't happen. Right. I would have moments where I'd be like, yo, what the f- like what the fuck? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but because I understand the systemic nature of it and historical nature, I didn't let that take root in a negative way. Mm-hmm. But I talk, you know, I talk to my younger cousins and like, you know, I got nephews just locked up. I got a brother that just came home 
And, you know, I'm, I'm always telling them like, yo, you gotta, you gotta write, you gotta respond, you gotta do some things, you know? Um, because that's part of the healing. Right. Like you can't come back home if you don't, you know, healthy and whole without feeling loved and supported. You gotta you know? have a release. Absolutely. And a sense yeah. of accomplishment. Like you said earlier, man, you know, you, you, you challenge yourself to do something and in 30 days you wrote a book. Uh, and I mean, with no co-author, like yeah. you did your punctuation, like you did all <laughs> I your did, I did. reading and everything. Yeah, you know it's crazy because I, you know, um, I read so many books though. Mm. You know, I read so many books. You know, and I mean, eventually, what the fuck is the semicolon, man? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> that is probably the, 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 the most complex. Yeah, your what punctuation. the fuck? When do you use a semicolon? <laughs> Every now and then, I find a way to use. I'd be like, Yo, I just use that motherfucker, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, that motherfucker <laughs> look cute. It looks slick right there. The sentence look fancy, man. All the time, you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, it's crazy though, because like when I first started, though, I was definitely like Oswald Bates. Remember Oswald Bates from Little <laughs> Color? Man, I was writing all these big ass words. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I was reading the brilliant writers, man, the Harlem right. Renaissance writers, and you know, they inspired me, man, to really understand language. You know, but the craziest thing, and this, this, this is no bullshit. Hip hop is like one of my greatest literary inspirations. Okay. Like I grew up, I grew up with it from a kid. Like you know, what I mean, I'm 47. I know I don't look like it, but I'm 47. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you, um, you, I mean, you definitely been kind of purified. Man, for yeah, a while. The, the, the long, yeah, yeah, I mean. a long time. <laughs> but I mean, I, I listen to to lyrics like you know, Rakim was always one of my favorite in terms of like what he would do with inside the bar structure. Sure. And as a writer, you know, I've, I've I've realized that that was my rhythm. So I'm listening to hip hop when I'm writing, right? And I have a whole system, right? So when I'm first just getting the story out, I listen to rock and roll and jazz. Mm. And then once I got and the story down, any reason why rock and roll and jazz? Because they, I feel like from conception. I, yeah. So so with the conceptional part, um, I think rock and roll and jazz are very cinematic, and I'm a very visual writer, so I want people to feel like they're in a scene, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then it's very chaotic and very unstructured, and and but still it finds its place, right? And then when they, once I got the story down. When I'm just polishing it up and I'm like going back through chapters and, you know, going sentence by sentence and word by word. I don't want every word to count. That's when I'm listening to hip hop. You know, yeah. so it's a whole, whole system. Then when I'm done, I'm like, let me throw on something smooth so I can just <laughs> celebrate. You know what I mean? That's but, what's up. Yeah, bro. I mean, and, and you also spoke on this earlier. Um, the amount of talent and and, and like from storytellers to comedians to, like, visual artists um, to, I mean, basketball, football, you know what I'm saying? Like, the amount of, like, real talent that helps us while we, you know, pass the time. This, I think that these things could be applied in many different areas of commerce absolutely in society um every prison got at least two or three superstars in Man, every category every category absolutely. you know what i'm saying at least yeah i think uh that says a lot to to, to like we we become a community mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying it's not on ours like you know motherfuckers getting shanked and raped every day right like, right you know right, right. It'll build up to that, and you know, yeah, it be your, you it's, have it's, your fair it's, share. Yeah, it's prison. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean. Happens, yeah. But overall, it's a community. Absolutely, people who actually have to live around. Yeah, you got around your cook. Each other. You got your electrician. Yeah, yeah. You got your I shank maker. I went to the mess hall once. Man, come on, bro. Yeah, because you got the chefs, man. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Uh, 
that is, I believe, like how can we? And I actually taught a class on this when I was when I was down. How can we take those same applications of skill and direct them toward some level of of effective uh, productivity when they when, when when brothers get out and sisters yeah, too? Absolutely. No, I, I'm I'm happy you asked that question because I think it's one of the things that's the most important in terms of what I've been able to do uh, with sharing my story. Right. So part of the reason I share my story so freely. It's because I really want people to understand that I'm no different than everybody else that's being thrown away. I just made different choices. That's right. And the thing is, you got other people in that environment who they have all the potential in the world. Like, seriously, like I'm talking about some of the dopest artists. I, I taught a class at the University of Michigan okay. for three years. three sem- Yeah, three years. Actually, like three years, right? Dope. Three semesters. And I remember when I first started teaching, like, I was like, man, I got a GED. But I'm here teaching at one of the top universities out of prison. Like, That's literally, right. I've been on, only been home a couple of years, right? And my students would go inside the prisons. And what we would do is we curated creative writing, visual arts, and they taught theater and all this stuff, right? And so every year in the University of Michigan, we host the largest ex- exhibition of uh, prison-based art. That's And fair. a level of art, bro. Like, I got a Bob Marty piece that's so fire, bro. <laughs> a guy did with pencil. I'm talking about you can see the hair follicles. Damn. That a brother did with a pencil, right? And so for me... Storytelling has been my way to humanize the brothers that I left behind. And I'm specifically saying brothers because that's where I was at as a male joint, right? Right. And these are actually my friends. But to humanize their experience, and I think that taking people back inside, you know, really so they can actually see who was in there. Because there's the image, right? It's the image that, that media portrays. It's the guy you scared of, the thugs, whatever the case may be. So much more than that. Absolutely, you know. And so, I mean, there's artists in there. And crazy crazy true story. So I also was a fellow at MIT Media Lab. Okay. I did a prison hack. And basically I challenged all these top scientists, students, and all this to uh, solve like five things that we do in prison all the time. Mm. Make a stinger, the thing you use to heat the mm-hmm. water up. Make a tattoo gun. Uh, make a fish line. Literally, I gave them like five design challenges. They couldn't complete one of them. What? But these brothers in the joint completed them like this. That's right. And so what it told me is that who's controlling the narrative around what genius is, what talent is, is the one often dictating how the rest of the world sees it. Yeah. And so for me as a writer, being able to share these stories, I'm like, this is my responsibility to tell these real stories so people can see and to create these spaces for people to see what's actually on the inside. So to your point, man, there's so many dope people on the inside, and we need to figure out, excuse me, how to access that. You know, on the panel, you raised an excellent point. You raised the point of compensation while we're in prison, um, being cents an hour, cents on the dollar uh, every hour. But you you worked at this place, uh, however much you made there, you still developed a certain level of experience Absolutely. in this industry. But when you get out, that experience does you no good. You can't go there. You would think yeah. you could go to that place and get a job easily, them knowing that you've been working for them for 17 cents an hour yeah. for 10, 12 years. Yeah. yeah, but that's not the case, though. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's one of the things when we're talking about the system as, you know, a complex, you know, prison industrial complex and the exploitation of free or cheap labor. That's why so many people end up going back. It's not because they commit new crimes. It's because they got all these trivial, you know, parole, probation violations. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a reason because it's a big money industry, you know. And so to know that these companies, these corporations, some of some of people's favorite corporations, you know, have, have used prison labor, you mm. know, Whole Foods, Victoria's Secret. I, actually, let me, yeah, those people, right? And who, um, so who else are some of them? Are they still participating to this day? I don't know where they're at with it now because once people started getting caught out on it, people started kind of shrinking back or paying wages that were considerate. Mm. Um, but it's so many of these companies. So you mean to tell me yeah. that guys who haven't even been around no pussy right. is making lingerie <laughs> for 17 cents an hour? Yeah, sometimes it's, it's some of the, um, I don't know exactly what they was making when they were actually invested in it, but sometimes it could be something like the clips or whatever the case may be, oh, right? Oh, gotcha. And then sometimes the they, be, they be maybe running like the call centers or whatever the case may right. be. But, you know, the, the the crazy thing is, like, a lot of these companies will not hire a person with a felony when they get out. Right. And, like, that's the part that's super problematic. And, the cra- and, and these companies, they pay a little bit better than, like, the, the state pays, right? Okay. Like, my first gig in the joint, I was going to pay $0.17 cent an hour mm. uh, working in the kitchen. Right. And then I moved up to – first I decided that I wasn't doing anything that didn't help the guys in prison. So sure. I began to only do, like, law library – uh, things like that that was helpful. I can really be helpful, and that right. went up to like a dollar something a day. Okay, make like fifty four dollars a month. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but some of those other jobs may pay like you know a dollar an hour, a dollar twenty hour. That's considered a a good gig in a joint. But mm. it's the prison model. You know the the thing about. It, I remember when I first learned that they was paying seventy cents. I'm like, I'm gonna sue these people. <laughs> like literally, that's my brain straight went there. Like I'm not working for that, and you're forced to work. Yeah. And then I realized that you can't sue. Because the Thirteenth Amendment yeah, says that you justifies servitude if you got a, if you're in prison, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yo, this is like really slavery," you know what I mean? Yeah. And our people didn't really know about that until like Ava dropped the Thirteenth, which right. was a brilliant film um, that really made that 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 massive connection. Man, I think another thing that 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 you that you are are very heavy on is. Uh, Self-improvement. Absolutely. Self-reflection. Looking in the mirror at your reflection and being honest with who you are, how you got there, and what it takes for you to make the necessary changes to advance. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly important because a lot of our youngsters, man, they really just kind of avoiding criticism. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They just moving through life, and they either trying to sweep all their bullshit under the rug instead of dealing with it, allowing it to fester, um, or, or or they 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 simply just never really have any high level of accountability. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think the lack of accountability allows more heinous, unspeakable things to happen. Absolutely. Um, what was the moment, right, that you remember in prison that changed your life? Like, what was the genesis of your transformation? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a there's a series of things I call them my three miracles. Uh, two of them I talked about, which was you know uh, having them incredible mentors, brothers who challenged my thinking. Right. You know, when I would take those books back to the libraries, the brothers would be like, okay, well, so what happened in chapter ten right. on page what's more? Like they mastered these books, right? right. And I would sit there and debate with I'm like the young cat. I love to debate and, and, sure. and talk that talk, right? And these guys were shrewd, man. I'm talking about they're the shrewd strategists, you know, strategicians and, and just really strategists 
Um, and these guys were really just challenged me to think, like, you know, well, what did what did this person mean in this chapter, you know? Right. Uh, so that was pivotal for me. And then, of course, the letter from my son. But I also received a letter from the uh, woman who said that she raised a man whose life I'm responsible for taking. Mm. And I remember getting that letter and heard when I first started reading it, like, I wanted to ball that up. I didn't want to be responsible. You know, right. I, was the, I, was the, I was the trigger guy. I was like that, you know that guy in the hood, um, and I remember reading those words, and she was like, not only do I forgive you, but I love you. Mm. And in that moment, I didn't feel worthy of her love or forgiveness. Right. And so that was something that I knew that I had to work to understand within myself. And when I got real with myself with the journaling, and I was just like, okay, this is all the shit I have to own. Right. You know, this is how I showed up in the world. Like, it was life-changing to me. You know what I mean? So not to me, no matter what happens in my life, I'm responsible. Sure. And the thing about culturally, you know, of course there's the systemic things. Of course there's racism and all the other things. But no matter what these things are, you still have a choice of how you want to show up for you. That's right. You know, and if you're responsible for another life, you know, you're responsible for children. Like, to me, to, to know that I have forfeited my responsibility as a father, like, I couldn't walk around as a man and feel like a, a, a man knowing that I wasn't giving my all to turn that around for him. You know right. what I'm saying? And we don't have the best relationship to this day, and I had to own that. You know what I'm saying? So to me, it's just like being crucified in that fire. You know, you got to put yourself through it. And, you know, what I what I try to impart to the to the young brothers and young sisters is you got to be around people that, that honor who you are. Like mm. all my dudes who are really my friends in the joint, and these are guys I still – take care of and still connect with like these brothers challenge me to think differently you know they call me out when like yo bro you want to you gonna scrap a dude because he fouls you on the court that's what we doing like you don't got control of your emotions so it's like all the things that you're not like you don't have to typically check in the hood like and you talked about on the panel which i i I was like this probably went over some people's head because they like (laughs) you was like no it's some real structs in there right because it's life or death choices absolutely but it's also about maturation and and what it means to really be a, a, a man and a warrior and a king, right? That's and that's you can't have that without somebody saying, "Hey, bro, you 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 wilding right now." Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, check that. You know, and sadly, a lot of these guys are super fragile. You know, like if, like I'm just watching uh, all the fallout from like uh, the the, the Takashi cat, right? Yeah. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, people are like shocked, but I'm like, yo, the culture is set up where you don't you didn't even have to earn that. Like, right. I grew up in the streets where. You got to earn your way in the streets. You know what I'm saying? You got to earn your way in the joint. You don't just get boss level. You don't call shots without putting work in. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Without consulting with the OGs, without them giving you their blessing and and really saying, hey, you're the one. You know what I mean? Like, even now, like, I check in with my OGs in the joint out of respect for what they built, you know, what they, you know, gave me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that gift that they gave me, the wisdom to discern through the bullshit you yeah. know what I'm saying like what type of I can't call myself a man if I don't reach back to them brothers yeah you know what I'm saying wise I mean, men seek wise counsel absolutely you're listening to Expeditiously on Podcast One what matters when you start a business is you and your idea not when you start it so if you make up your mind and go for it GoDaddy has all the help and tools you need to bring it online Start today at GoDaddy.com, because open, we stand. What matters when you start a business is you and your idea, not when you start it. So if you make up your mind and go for it, GoDaddy has all the help and tools you need to bring it online. Start today at GoDaddy.com. 
Because open, we stand. Hey, where you think you going? The show ain't over yet, man. Expeditiously continue. Now, we, 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 spoke, we spoke a bit about the youth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very important to me that we find something I guess a way that we can utilize our strengths on their behalf because mainly, I'm going to tell you, because my children growing up in this motherfucker, so this is going to be the community that they live, that they grew up uh, amongst. So, it, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it high-key interests me to do whatever I can with my influence, to, you know what I'm saying, try to make it somewhat more, I guess, I don't want to say tolerable, but... I mean, because shit pretty bad out there. Man. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah. Shit pretty bad. Shit pretty fucked up. And I kind of go back because the, the hierarchy of the, 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 the OG's authority mm-hmm. has kind of been dismantled. Absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? And I believe the, the structure that you were talking about as far as having someone who have to come up in the ranks, it would destroy by either crack or prison. And another thing that I kind of pinpointed that kind of behavior back to the moment that I feel it was kind of fuck waiting my turn. I I want mine now and I shouldn't have to answer to nobody. I believe that moment historically came when Gotti killed Castellano. Mm. When John got it killed, Paul Castellano, it's like, shit, fuck a boss. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm going to get mine like Gotti did and so on and so forth. But they didn't see, or at least they haven't paid attention to how that story kind of, it, it, it really, it dismantled the structure of the Cosa Nostra. Absolutely, and, I'm, and I mean, when you when you think about it now, right? Like we live in a culture where, if you try to hold somebody accountable, you consider the hater. Yeah, and like that's super trash, though. <laughs> like real talk, right? Like 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 you're a hater if you're just being like, yo, like you got to check that. Like there got to be some accountability. You right. know what I mean? And you know, you, you you're not in our communities where, you know, it's easy to blame everybody outside of us. That's right. The hardest thing is to be accountable. That's you know, true. The hardest thing is to be like, yo. Let me just give you what's real and not be considered a hater. You know what I'm saying? And so because that, that structure is missing, you know, it's chaotic. But then it's like nobody want to deal with the consequences. That's real. And then what's on the other side of those consequences, you know? And so I was actually watching a, uh, a TED talk the other day. And this guy was talking about coaches. Mm. And he said something. It's, it's crazy. It's like sometimes like the most obvious thing is so genius and then it doesn't even hit you until somebody else says it, right? Real. And he was like, the be- the absolute best players in the world still have a coach. Whereas in this culture, it's like, oh, I'm the man. I don't need nobody. Can't nobody tell me nothing. I don't want to listen to nobody. Yeah. The best players in the world have a coach. And everybody need an OG. Everybody need a mentor. So everybody needs somebody who's been through the things that you're possibly going to go through mm-hmm. or what you're trying to avoid to really give you life wisdom. you know. And I think... You know, we we hustled out of circumstances that weren't ours. You know what I'm saying? You know, we we hustled out of desperation or whatever the case may be. Sure. But the skill sets that we acquired there. Right. You know, and so what we need now is more translating of those skills. You know, I actually listened to uh, I was listening to the to the podcast with you and you and Master P, 
And I was like, man, I hope these young cats picking these bars up, man. Because y'all was dropping them, bro, like real talk. Hey, and, man, P yeah. is one of the most the most quintessential definitions of, of from nothing to something. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? I think that he has one of the most obvious displays of, of overcoming the odds. Absolutely. Yeah, you know I mean, so I mean, I definitely, it, I was excited about it just because I knew how much, you know, how much wisdom there but so, was. But I mean, there. there's so many of y'all brothers in the culture, though, that they don't see that part of y'all work ethic. Sure. No days off. Right. Coast to coast, city to city, plane to plane, hundreds and hundreds of people, right? Right. And we don't really talk about process, you know, and I think that with, with the younger generation, you know, to your point, I have a seven-year-old, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm thinking about, what is the world that I want them to have? Like, I, my, so my oldest son, who, you know, who I forfeited the the right to raise as my son because I was in prison his whole life till I, you know, till he was nineteen. Mm -hmm. Like he and I had a deep conversation today, lately, right before I came over here, mm. and it's the hardest part that I've had to deal with since getting out. You know, and that's the thing. On the other side of all the shit that we go through, it's still lives that's impacted. You know, that's right. and I know my son is hurt. By my absence, he won't admit it. But me and him, when we talking, I'm like, I was just telling him, I'm like, you hit me up when you want some bread. But I'm like, you're not even reliable as a big brother to your younger brother. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you know, as 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 men, like, we have we have a responsibility to pass it on. Even in our own hurt, Yeah, we still got a responsibility to pass it on. Sure. You know? And so I think, you know, just having these conversations, man, is, is an important part of healing and fixing the system because, you know, we can't keep going back. Like, we got to make those choices, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. As Thug said on the podcast, you must teach what's been taught. Right. For real. For real. So, I mean, what do you think are ways that we can kind of recognize that same anger in the younger generation and and take have a hand in helping them sort through it? Yeah, I think I think more people fearful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's always interesting to me, like when, when we're talking about the younger generation. Like, so I'm I'm always in different neighborhoods and different communities, and people are like you feel comfortable walking through here, or like if it's like a group of young brothers standing outside yeah. the door, and I'm like, you know, if you recognize people's humanity, right, they'll honor that. You know, when I walk up to to a young brother, they at the door, I don't be like, what up, niggas? You know what I mean? I'll be like, how y'all brothers doing? Right on. You know? But I stand there who I am as a man. Sure. But how y'all young brothers doing? And their energy shifts so dramatically, you know? And, and I think one of the things that's happened with, specifically with young black males, is we haven't given them permission to be boys. Yeah. You know, this is why the police kill them so, you know, easily. Right. Because they they can't acknowledge the humanity of a kid. Right. They don't see the kid in our, in our and we don't see it. You know, so many of us... End up in the streets, man. We 13, 14 years old. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, like, that's important for us to even acknowledge that these are these are actually kids. Okay. And, you know, that takes a different way of thinking. It takes us reprogramming ourselves as, as elder statesmen, so to say, you know. We must unlearn and relearn. Absolutely. You know, so to, to that, you know, I encourage brothers to, like, you know, me and my guys, we still read books and vibe, you know. We right. still talk about. Complex things, you know. I got one of my friends got a, a dope. Actually, one of my best friends got a dope book coming out. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna have all my dudes reading. It's called "What You Do Is Who You Are." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's the it's actually a business book, but it's really about the culture of life. You know what I mean? Really? And so you know, doing stuff like that, I think can be really helpful. And the other part is 
we have to see the little boy in us when we look at them. You know, a lot of us, we hustled in the streets, and it's glorified. You know, the, the culture glorifies, the culture glorifies I mean, coming home from prison. It's definitely a yeah. redemptive story. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's triumphant. Absolutely. To have a little yeah. kid with holes in his shoes and, Man. you know, come from a, a household where mama was rubbing two dimes together trying to, you know, come up with a family grilled cheese and yeah. here you is. Now you've become this big mogul of a CEO that can do for you and yours. Absolutely. Like that, that, that story, it feels good to hear. Yeah, most definitely. So we love those, but. The process to get there. Like I don't want. I don't, I don't want to hear about that. Right. <laughs> Just tell me right. about the part. Tell me about the good part. Where they move out together. <laughs> right. Tell me about the part where you got there. You know what Fuck I mean? Fuck all the other episodes of Good Times. Just take me to the part where, where they, they got together. <laughs> right. Right. To the moving on up scenario. Yeah. But yeah. But I, I think you know just just building with them through that light and that lens, man, and and having a little bit more empathy and compassion for each other. You know, um, I think that makes a world of difference. You know, and. Creating platforms like this, like, you know, I salute salute you for even having me on the show because I think, My pleasure. you know, the stories and the experiences that I have is valuable to our community. And when you get, you know, brothers and sisters who are saying, hey, just talk to the people, talk to our kids, like, right. that's invaluable, you know, because where else are they going to get this real experience from uh, from somebody who lived where they lived at, you know? That's real. I think one thing that I always try and convey uh, as messaging to, to, to the kids who I have an opportunity to talk to is there is greatness in each and every last one of you. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? It's something that is inside of you, whether it's a thought, an idea, uh, a strategy, a uh, 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 solution tactic. There's something that you have that only you can offer the world. Mm-hmm. Now, the key is... You figuring out what that is and getting it f- from inside of you out for the world to be able to take notice of. Absolutely. And usually what will cloud the vision and prolong the process is when you pay more attention to what other people do Man. instead of recognize what you can do. And I give the example, you know, uh. I'm a proud black man that I I, I don't play sports. I don't, I'm not good at basketball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just not. Right, you know, right. I didn't spend much of my time, you know, day in, day out, playing on courts. And, you know, I just didn't. I, I acquired a different pastime. But if I were to focus on the fact that I can't dunk a basketball, right. if – all I did was kind of take notice in all of the other guys who, you know what I mean, who can who can play ball or who could dunk. And I'm like, man, I can't even do that. I ain't shit because I can't even dunk a right, basketball. Right. I wouldn't have an ability to take notice of all the other things that I do well that people who may be able to dunk a basketball can't do. Mm. I think that's a big part of, you know, what's going on with the guys, the young the youngsters coming up. They paying so much attention to what, they're not good at right. and kind of blaming themselves or feeling guilt from what they're not good at that they ain't taking the opportunity to notice the things that they that they may excel in. It's, it's an interesting book. Um, it's a brother named Amos Wilson, a book called Black on Black Violence. Okay. And I remember reading this book when I was in a joint and just trying to understand the culture of, like, why we were so volatile toward each other. Mm. And basically what he explained was like, you know, when when you've been stripped of a real identity and you 
they're stripped of a sense of self-worth and love like you master uh, becoming the, the best at being the worst. And, like, when I read that, I was like, damn, like, that's that's what, what it was, right? Like, not feeling loved and not feeling worthy. Right. And that was the thing I struggled with when, when I first got that letter. Like, I didn't know how to receive that forgiveness letter. It took me some mm. years to build up a did sense you, of did worthiness. Did you answer it? Absolutely. Absolutely, how yeah. How long did it take you to write your your rebuttal? It took me – so it was, it, was, it was really difficult because she wanted to know what happened that night. Mm. And because she was so – thoughtful and so sweet you know she was an elder lady you know Mm -hmm. it was hard for me to really give her the particulars of what actually happened through my eyes at 19 Mm -hmm. and so it was hard for me to write that part of you know but i eventually got around to just explain explain it to her what really happened you know and can you um, talk about it yeah sure yeah it was uh so it was a drug deal that that went bad you know and um and just to give some context because i don't believe in excuses right but i believe in explanations right so 16 months prior, I got shot multiple times. Mm-hmm. From that moment forward, I literally carried a gun and that made up in my mind that I'm shooting first I can any conflict, right? So what's not in the current version of the book that's on the shelf is that within that 16 months, I shot four different people. Mm. The last person actually died. Um, and, and what happened with that situation, it was a guy who I used to sell drugs to. Mm-hmm who normally was like a pretty good spinner, mm-hmm. and he ended up coming to my residence. Like, it's like wholesale? No, like, this was this was like hand-in-hand. Hand. This was like, yeah, this was hand-in-hand. Hand. Actually, this wasn't, even, this wasn't even weight. This wasn't okay, even, okay, okay. He just so bought, he bought, yeah, he bought, like, yeah, he was, he was a user, but he was like gotcha. one of those unique users that gotcha. go gather from everybody, right? Yeah, 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 gotcha. Um, and so I was actually DJing at a party where a guy had just got shot in front of the party. Oh. Lead a party. I get around to my house. This car pulls up. And it's this guy I know, but he in the car with two guys I don't know. Mm-hmm. I refuse to make the transaction because mm-hmm. there's two guys I don't know. We already, you know, this whole shooting other situation already planned, you know, in my mind. That escalation to an argument. Mm. Threats exchange back and forth. I'm literally turning to walk in the house. What I sounds like to me is the car door opening. Mm-hmm. I turn and fire four shots tragically in the man's life. Damn. Um, and so I was subsequently. When you, say, when you say what you thought was the car door opening, what was it actually? I don't even know to this day. Mm. There's conflicting stories of whether he was attempting to get out or whether he wasn't. Mm. Um, but in that in that moment, right? And it, and, it, and I always tell people like this is like a thirty second decision can cost you the rest of your life yeah. in prison or it can cost you death, whatever the case may be. Right. right. And, you know, it was just one of those horrible moments where, you know, and I've, and I've replayed it over and over my mind of like, okay, what could I have done differently? You know, if these things would have happened differently, all the different outcomes. Right. right. But it's something I live with forever, bro. Like it's, it's nothing like, even though I, I get in these spaces and I talk about like the healing part, you know, and, and, you know, even when we talk, you know, growing up in the hood and being the goon and being a gangster. Yeah. When you emotionally evolve and you realize the devastating impact that your action had on a family right. and on a community, right. it's nothing gangster about that. That's like real. that's one thing. Like life, you know, death is permanent. Like you don't, I can, you know, if I rob somebody, I can repay them. I can get them restitution. Mm, you probably you know won't. No, I won't. But I'm just saying, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, but I could. It's possibly that I could, right? Right. But you know, when you when you take a life, you know, and especially in a in a, in a sensitive situation, sure. Um, you know, you live with that forever, right? You know, and it, and it's, 
You know, it's one of the pathologies in our community that we don't often talk about is the PTSD associated with taking a life. Right. Like, I came home and that thought still plays out. Like, I watch, you know, and there's certain things that pop up. Like, I don't watch the news. Right. Because when I see them mothers crying over their loved ones, sure. I know I made somebody's family feel like that. Damn. You know, uh, when I think about, um, you know, what happened with Nip, you know, and, yeah. and you see all these, um, you know, the, the young brother who was accused. Like, the reality is that it's a lot of us in our community that have been both of them brothers. Mm. The brother who's been shot and the brother who shot somebody that everybody loved. And, you know, to, to you know, if we're going to heal that, we got to be honest about both parts of that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, that it's painful and it's devastating to our community. And so, you know, when that happened and she reached out with that level of love and forgiveness, right. like, I knew that I had to reach back out to her. I just didn't know how at that time. You know, I was about 26, Betty, and I had about five or six years in. You right. know? But as I began to mature... I began to open up to her more about, like, what really happened through my lens. And, and the wisdom, man, that she had, this woman has, was that she was like, you was a kid. You know, you was 19 years old, you was a kid. In my mind, I didn't see myself as a kid. Yeah. I saw myself as this monster who was just taking somebody's loved one over something that probably both of us could have resolved a different way. Right. Um, and even now, doing this work, I understand the brain science is different. And they're saying that you're not even maturing until you're like 25, 26. Yeah. But because I grew it's up man. in— man. My yeah, daughter I, is at least 36. <laughs> she's only been living for three years. Yeah. You know what I mean? But but it's like that. So, so yeah, I had to reach back out to her, man. You know? Man, I think that there's a lot to be said for her level of resilience. Absolutely. And, and, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a strength. I know a lot of times in coming up, especially in the environments we come up in, we look at forgiveness as a weakness. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we can't let no nigga get nothing off on me. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, but forgiveness is actually a strength. And I learned that, you know, much later on, much later on in life. But now when you was on Oprah, Oh, you sat down with Oprah. Yeah. Uh, you said the more negative you are, the more validated you are. Yeah. So explain for the people who probably can't put that into context what you meant. Yeah. So, you know, when growing up in the hood, like, you know, I grew up with, with guys who are considered street legends. Sure. You know, with great deals of street notoriety, right? And, you know, like my, my older brother, he's currently in the wheelchair. He's been shot on a couple of occasions. He's like a super chill dude nah but he was he was wild with it you know he right. you know shooting it out and all these things and that was celebrated in the hood you know and so growing up in that culture where you know the shooter is respected yeah you know it was like the more i was validated yeah. you know when i pull up on the block and it's a problem and the block clear out because i'm on the block and it's a problem like that's that's a sense of validation that sense of false power that I felt, you know what mm -hmm, I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until I began to understand what true power is and self-control and discipline yeah. and things like that. But in that environment where uh, the, the abnormal becomes normal, you know, it's celebrated. And, you know, when I even like going in, it's so interesting. Like when I'm talking to young, young, young people, like when I first go into these tough schools, they don't know who I am, you know what I'm saying? But then I'll be like, yo, all the shit that y'all talking about, y'all really about? Right. I was really about that? Right. You see the shift, and they'll tune in, and, and it's basically me being able to take that negative and turn it into something positive, because I know it catches their attention. But, yeah, that's it's celebrating the hood, you know? We yeah. have to figure out a way. I mean, it's like it's like even if you watch like Scarface, like Tony Montana 
Let's celebrate it. You know, everybody want to be Tony Montana. Yeah. Nobody talk about being Sosa. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Real talk, you know? But uh, That make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you, you're a very well-read gentleman, and, you know, I think one of the the most prolific thinkers, you know, that could be brought out of an environment, out of circumstances like this. Tell me, what are the top three books that you would recommend for true self-reflection true and self-reflection. transformation? Top three books. Um, definitely Malcolm X, number one, uh, without without a doubt. Another book that I think is super important is As a Man Thinketh mm. by James Allen's about 63 pages. It's a book you can carry in your back pocket. Okay. Every page, fire bars. Gotcha. Like, seriously, it was one of the... That book was so pivotal because it made all the things that I read in Malcolm about what he did, as a man think of, validated that for me. Mm. Because it was really about the power of one's own mind. And that book allowed me to journey into my mind in a way that nothing had before. Right. Because I was like, oh, you attract into your life what you, you know, what you really believe, right? Right. Um, and then I would say... Um, man, I got so many so many jewels, man. There's so many. Um, uh, Long Walk to Freedom was was incredibly influential in my life. Right on. Uh, the resiliency of, of Nelson Mandela was just incredible. Uh, Think and Grow Rich. It's kind of like this duality, right? It's like the self help joints, mm-hmm. but also the the autobiographical of people who actually went through things. Experiences. So, yeah. So I would say those right there. In uh, the version of Think and Grow Rich, I like the most is the Think and Grow Rich a Black Choice. I prefer that one over the other one because okay. it's black. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. yeah, uh, I but the other one is, is, is equally classic. Um, but, yeah, Malcolm is is, is like, Asada, though, Asada is fire, too, though. Yeah, Asada's stories. Man, <sighs> Asada is fire, bro. Yeah, like, that's yeah, Tupac that, Auntie, yeah. y'all. Yeah, that, that book right there. Don't know, Asada Shakur, uh, yeah. a, 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 a very prestigious black panther yeah yeah her 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 book her journey of how she handled adversity the level of dignity uh gave me so much it enriched my life in, in so many ways so i mean I've, I've read so many joints that just super inspiring man that's oh the, it's another this, this is like one? off the radar which one this one is called um okay oh, yeah segu 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 s-e-g-u okay what is it about it's so it's a novel mm-hmm but it's a not it's a historical novel, so it's kind of like Roots before Roots. Gotcha, man. This book was so beautiful, so enriching on a spiritual level. So, so it talked about black people before slavery. Yeah, and it gives you this whole. You see this whole kind of breakdown of how you know Africa was attacked mm. and how it you know led and created space for the slave trade to happen. Right. I mean, the getting rid of like the original traditions and things like that. Um. And it's just like beautifully written. So another thing people don't really understand is this whole the same thing that happened in America happened everywhere around the world. Absolutely. I went to South Africa and I spent some time over there filming this uh this this film called Monster Hunters. Mm-hmm. And um so while I was over there of course, you know, I tap into the culture, you know, speak to the people, find out who's selling weed. And, you know, where to get the best <laughs> right, food. Right. You know, what exactly. you know what, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Finding out, you know what I'm saying, where I can go socialize and hang out and just kind of, you know, be a human. Um, 
And in talking to natives there, they told me that there is another guy, similar to Christopher Columbus, mm. who was an explorer that bumped into the shores of South Africa, mm. ran into the natives, totally raped, pillaged, and, like, devoured the area for their own domination. And claimed themselves to be the founder of that land. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. The, so, like, that was like a thing. You dig what I'm saying? That was like a hustle. You know, back in those days for Europeans, I guess, to build ships, go out, explore, find land to conquer with yeah. by the most treacherous means. Yeah. And that shit, to me, man, is a real temple tapper. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How all across there's like global domination. Absolutely. At the beginning of every story because colonization happened in every continent. Yeah, no doubt. Man. And a stripping of culture. Like that's the whole thing. Like that that lack of connectivity. I'm actually going to uh, Ghana in December. It'd be my first time. Man, um, I want to go. I think uh, yeah. me and me and Tamika Mallory, man, we said we was going. Oh, that's my that's my home. Yeah, yeah. dope dope sister, man. Yeah, Doing some man. Incredible work. Yeah, she's uh she 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 man mean as a rattlesnake when she want to be. Man, yeah, you know, but she she definitely man uh, uh ten toe down, dedicated yeah. and committed to the struggle. Yeah, we, absolutely. We talk we talk quite often. Yeah. I, I'm proud to call her sister, man. Yeah. Um, now. I want you to finish this sentence for me. Mm -hmm. The most important thing I have done is. The most important thing I've done is do affirmations with my seven-year-old. I've been doing this with him um, since he's been about 18 months. Okay. And we do it every sort of nighttime ritual. I actually did it before I came over here because I knew I wasn't going to be back home in time for him to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I look at what's happening with young black men and, you know, throughout the country, and I look at the depiction of us and how people interpret us, um, a lot of us internalize that. You know, I internalized it when I was a kid. I didn't believe I was worthy or valuable. Um, and so for me, for me as a father, knowing, you know, how I forfeited my responsibility the first time around, I wanted to empower my younger son to understand exactly who he is, mm. to never allow anybody else's narrative or definition of him to be more important than the story and narrative he has of himself. Right. And I started that ritual. We swear by it. Uh, he feels so validated. I mean, one time um, a woman was like, oh, you're, you're so cute. He was like, actually, I'm handsome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like actually I'm handsome, you know, and I'm yeah. smart, and so you know, even when he when he gets something correct, he'd be like, "Dad, I'm a genius," mm. because that's what we do every night, you know. Yeah. And what's what's interesting about that? I have I had a talk with a uh, conversation with uh, Quincy Jones, mm -hmm. um, the, the legendary man, you know Quincy, Q, OG, right? Man, the legend um, maker, absolutely. And and we were having a conversation. I told him I did this ritual with my son. Mm -hmm. And, man, he was, like, so excited. And he was like, I still do affirmations to this day. And I was like, damn, this is this is legendary, iconic, 
man who's done everything imaginable um, in terms of accomplishments mm. and to know that he still goes through that process of waking up every day and saying, hey, I am great, you know, right. I'm worthy, I'm love, I'm light, you know. And to be able to do that with my son, you know, it's, it's also affirming for myself because I got to go out in a world and battle. You know, it's like even though I've, I'm pretty successful in, in what I do, uh, I've exceeded all the low bar expectations that people had. Right. There are so many things that I'm confronted with as ha- by having a felony on my record. Right. Um, and so I'm constantly affirming myself through affirming him, you know. And, and you know, I, I think the way that he shows up in the world, you know, he's so present and he's such a magnet in terms of how he attracts other people into his life, into his that care about him and mm-hmm. want to nurture the best in him and his intelligence and things like that. And um, so that's that's the best thing I've ever done, man. I think, man, I agree. I think one yeah. of the, um, I think one of the most significant things that we can do in this life of ours is leave children that assume significant positions. Absolutely. You know what I mean? When I say significant positions, I ain't necessarily talking about getting a good job and making a lot of money. I'm talking about who actually hone their gifts, talents, and abilities uh, and incorporate them in ways that can actually make the world a better place. No doubt. You know, um, now, but you think about, a lot of times we think about the impact that uh, Martin Luther King had, you know, the impact uh, that, you know, just others, other similar figures in history had. Mm-hmm. But imagine their parents. Mm-hmm. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Like, to raise a Martin Luther King... And to, and to, you know what I mean? Like that, that is a, that is a game changer. Absolutely. I mean, not to say that, you know, everybody's, everybody's job as parents is important. Yeah. Um, But to actually have a child that uses his talents, abilities, and skills, overcomes adversities, puts his, his talents to the test, uh, and putting them into effect to make the world a better place. That's what all of us is is hoping to achieve with parents. You know what I mean? No, that's you, I mean that's that's a real real jewel for sure. And it, it makes me think about my father um and who my father is in the neighborhood, you know? Right. Um you know, all the brothers in the neighborhood, man, know my father. Mm. Cuz my father's the guy that's going to stop you, kick it with you, right? Chop it up, you know, and he's versatile like he's intellectual he's hood sure you know he might fire one up with you you know right. sip on a little yak with you you know <laughs> um but the the thing that he's consistently exhibited you know over the years and he had to grow man like man his relationship grew tremendously while i was in prison you know okay. it wasn't always what it is now you know we had to have like some real grown men conversations mm-hmm. you know and one of the things that i learned from him is the humility to say i was wrong mm-hmm. and to say that i failed in my responsibilities as a father and as a man, and to be able to step up to the plate and say, look, let's move forward with the understanding of what transpired, you know. So um, that's a lot of my mentoring comes from from my father, you know, is, is you know, the way that he pours back into the community. Uh, that's something that I've, I've, I realized that I got organically from him. Right. I mean, I mean, like, it is not – 
it is not a a coincidence that our leaders are being attacked. Absolutely. It's not a coincidence that our families are being attacked and dismantled. You got to understand, just like you spoke about OGs and real true leadership, with no hierarchy, there's no order. Absolutely. And with no order, there's chaos. Mm. So all the things we're experiencing right now where people don't look at kids as kids, uh, nine times out of ten is because they haven't, endured the same circumstances as these kids. Mm. So their their I guess emotionless demeanor seems a bit foreign and inhumane to them. Uh and that's why we need true leaders there to direct these kids, their thoughts, their emotions, um and the stuff that they really have to cope with and deal with on a day-to-day, man. Mm-hmm. Without people who understand that, um, I think it's going to be, like, you know, it's going to be more of a difficult process. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's why people like you are so very important. That we, like, you're that. pivotal to the progression and advancement of the next generation because mm-hmm. you've gone through all the stuff that, you know, that they can possibly go through. Mm-hmm. You've seen the best and worst of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And through the worst of it, you've come out the other side even stronger, more well put together, you know what I mean, uh, than before. And that, to me, is a testimony that can resonate for generations as an example. I appreciate that, bro. One thing that I learned in my short stints, my <laughs> my t- count, my loot. short bids, yeah, yeah. Um, was to to appreciate the little things, Gosh. the small things in life that we usually take for granted. Absolutely. Uh, what was the one thing that changed while you were away that tripped you out when you got home? Man, technology was wild, bro. <laughs> I came home, I was like, yo. I mean, like, I'm a, I'm a nerd. Like, I'm low-key, I'm like a I'm like a real hood-ass nerd. Right. Um, but I, it was mind-blowing. Like, it was intimidating, too, though. Like, I think it, it was like, I underestimated, like, how much I needed to learn just to function as a regular person as much as possible um, in, in here. So when I came home, I remember I was at the gas station and, and like one of the gas station pumps started talking. Mm. And I was like, yo. Tell me from fuck? inside. Yeah, they was just like saying some wild shit. And then the screen popped up. I'm like, yo, what? Like, yo, <laughs> gas station got a TV on it, yo, bro. Like, come on, man. Like, back in the day, you get the attendant. This joint got a TV. And then they like talking over the thing, like, sir, move to this. I'm like, yo, this shit is crazy, right? Word. And then I remember the first car I was in with like the, 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 uh, the Bluetooth situation is talking. Uh, I'm like, yo, this is crazy. Like, how's they on this on this thing? So technology was wild, man. I, I always tell people it's kind of like Fred Flintstone walking to an episode of The Jetsons. You know what damn. I'm saying? Because, man, when I first came on, they was like, yo, you can Skype. I'm like, what you mean you can Skype? Like, yeah, you can talk to such and such. They're in why California can, like this. See like, watch this. <laughs> man, I was, I was just sitting there like, yo, like, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, that that was shocking to me. I think... The other part of it was um, was how how backwards things was though. Like I had these romanticized ideas, like that when I would come out and people was like living the life. You know what I'm saying? Because you only get them snapshots. And sure. I came home and people really weren't living the life. 
they was going through it. They were doing it for the gram. It was a reception, yeah, it was the reception <laughs> time. Right. And I was like, damn, like that was devastating, you know what I mean? Now how would how did you deal with that as far as adjusting and what advice could you give to other brothers coming home? Cause I have a I got a partner. He my OG partner, man. He about seventy four. Man, he want everything. He about seventy four. Yeah. Listen to me now. <laughs> the man is is the greatest story I've ever heard. Like as far as the man's been committing crimes. <laughs> Since 53. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, you know, and, and got all the game in the world. Right. And really raised me. He started out as my mama's boyfriend. Like, they was, you know, living together. He was, you know what I'm saying, me, him, and my mama for most of my younger years from probably about, I say about seven to maybe 11. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They was together. And, uh... They didn't work out, but after they broke up, I stayed in contact mm-hmm. with him. And he was kind of like, you know, the guy who come by and he took me to buy me my first car. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I fucked it up at the auction, though. <laughs> <laughs> I picked the lemon, and so he had the renege on the buy, right. and which, you know what I'm saying, that was another, that was a very useful lesson that I, I learned in life. But he's coming home now. Man. He's coming home now. So, And I always tell him, because I told him when he first, when he was first getting out, he did a 14-year bid. Yeah, I mean, his last bid was just fourteen years, and I and I I rode with him for the whole fourteen, and I told him when he when he was uh when he was coming out, I said, hey, listen, don't expect to get out and do it like you were doing it before you went in. Right, right, it's right. gonna frustrate you. Yeah. He said, man, I already got a plan. I I say, no. Fuck your plan. Yeah, throw that shit out the window. Yeah, throw that joint out the window, yo. <laughs> that man. shit ain't gonna work. I don't man, know what no, you're playing yeah, here. Yeah. But that shit ain't gonna work. So he's he's like, man, you know, I already know, you know, you could put me anywhere and I'm gonna make it. And then he get home and probably about three weeks later he say, Man, you sure was right. Yeah. It's real. This shit I had to I had to rethink that yeah, shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think your advice, being someone who did it successfully, like how do you adjust yeah i i uh so what i what i told my guys so we had this whole agreement right it was like five of us we had this agreement every brother come home got to make it easier for the next brother come right. home a couple of brothers didn't honor the agreement mm. but i remember one of my guys came home his name calvin evans man this is my bro 24 years one of the most stand-up cats i know did 24 years for a crime he didn't commit damn this guy's spirit is the most uplifting spirit having gone through that. Damn. You think it would be somebody devastating, right? So I got out before him. I came home to a relationship. I ain't know shit about relationships. I'm thinking I'm like grown. You hear ready that, Dino? It happen for you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, I come, I come home to a relationship, right? Uh-huh. I ain't know nothing about relationship. I was in the streets, you know, up until I came, went to the joint. So all I knew was fast money, fast girls. Right. Nothing committal, you know? Right. Come home to that and realize that I wasn't the adult I thought I was in terms of understanding relationships. Mm. It hit me when one day I'm driving. Literally, I got my first car was like a, a 96 Caprice Classic. Dope. First whip. I put some beat in it. And I'm literally riding. I'm at the stoplight. Cat pull up. He probably about 19, 20. Uh-huh. Same old school. It's the hood bends, right? Right. 
He got the beat in it, and I looked over him. I just started laughing so hard. I'm like, damn, yo, I'm 40. You got to elevate. But I'm looking like this cat, right? Yeah. And so I, I began to understand through those processes that there was some arrested development despite how mature I was. Absolutely. We all have it. Yeah, and I came home with, like, the damn just go, go, go. Yeah. Like I didn't give myself time to really appreciate life. Impressive. I came straight home, like, I got to get to it. I got to hustle. I got to grind. So when my dude came home, I was like, look, don't relax, bro. Like, don't even, like, look, we're going we gonna to party. We're going to have fun. Whatever you want to do. It's first trip to Vegas. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? Right. Relax. You know, work a little bit. You know, take care of your basics, all that. We're going to make sure that's good. Sure. Take your time and reincorporate into life out here. You really know what I'm saying? Yourself. Don't be in a rush to be in a relationship. Have fun. Yeah. All the fun you want to. Yeah. And then get down to work. You right. know what I'm saying? But give yourself permission to be present in it. So I always say to my guys coming home, take your time. And your family can put all this pressure on you, right? Because they, mm. they want to drag you everywhere. Like, everybody wants to take me everywhere, right? Can you Because cause it almost seems like before you go, like when you in, you're like, it's almost, you, you're something that should be avoided. Absolutely. And then when you come out, every trophy. Come on, man. Everybody want to come over here and see Miss Nala. You remember her from like. Yo, it's my, it's my man. I made it 19 years man, in the on, joint. Bro, listen. You know what I'm saying? Drag you everywhere. They want to take you to fancy restaurant. I'm like, yeah. yo, I don't know what escargot is, yo. I heard on the rap song, but I don't know what this shit is. They got a hamburger and some wings. I literally ate like hamburger and wings like almost exclusively, like probably like the first two years. Because like. The menus, man, would be, like, so overwhelming at these restaurants. Right. I'm like, it's too much to think about. You know what I mean? And so it took me time to really just start to think through the processes of, like, oh, I can be patient. I can take my time. Right. Like, I would never send food back if it was, like, bad. <laughs> I'm just like, I really want to eat and just bounce. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so a lot of things, you know, it takes time. It takes time to just really understand you're not on the yard no more. Right. You know, I would go out to places, and, like, one time I went to a club with my cousin, and it just filled up so fast, and, like, I, I got, I didn't even know I could even feel this type of anxiety. Mm. I rushed up out that joint, <laughs> hitting from, like, two blocks, I'm, like, literally, like, two bars over, like, yo, cuzzo, like, come get me, yo. He like, he, like, what's up, bro? Like, it's chill here. I'm, like, I can't, it's too many people, you know? Right. So, I say the biggest thing is taking your time. Don't let other people's eagerness to parade you around mm. dictates your pace, you know? And yeah. as far as relationships, take your time with that, you know? Like, enjoy life, be present in it, mm. you know? Um, but don't be in a rush to add a whole bunch of responsibility to your life. Yeah, and I think it's also, man, it's it's okay to not know. Yes, sir. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people feel like they're supposed to hit the ground on their feet. You know what I mean? Bounce out of prison into a soft pile of money. You know what I'm saying? It's okay to not have it figured out. It's okay to take that time to reflect and do what you need to do to build the foundation. And just breathe it in, man. Absolutely. I never forget, like, the first taste of, like, orange juice, though, when I came out. (laughs) I never forget that, man. that bullshit. Come on, bro. Like, really? (laughs) Like, seriously, like, that's one of my fondest morning memories, like, the first morning out. Man. It's like I was so mesmerized by how good this orange juice tastes. Wow. Like, that shit was fire. <laughs> I was like, yo, this is fire, man. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, you know, coming home, man, and back to community, 
like coming up on this 10 year celebration i just feel like i'm at that point now where what i try to do for my friend coming home mm-hmm. i'm actually doing for myself right where i'm just like you know what i'm not worried about shit I'm about to celebrate this 10 years. I'm about to have these experiences. Right. I'm going to figure them all out, but I'm going to be super present in my life. Because I've been dope. grinding, bro. So that's my, think, that's my mission right now. I think we should try to document that. I think that would be absolutely. a good thing to kind of document. Man, listen, you know what absolutely. I'm saying? It'll be a good, a good instruction manual. You know what man, I'm saying? Bro, it's, it's crazy, man. I'm super excited about it. Like, I'm literally going to Ghana. I'm just like, the thing, my inspiration for going for, to Ghana first out of every, every space was. Reading W.B. Du Bois in the joint and reading um, Maya Angelou's All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes. Mm. She was having a conversation with Malcolm X about Martin Luther King, and she was being critical. Mm. And Malcolm was like, listen, that brother's doing work. Even though our thing is different, like, right. we're not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, like, that set the tone for even how I show up, like, in terms of social impact space, right? I will never publicly criticize or cancel any of our people who are trying to work in the best interest of our people. Mm. You know what I'm saying? We can have a sidebar off social media conversations on why this may not be effective, but I would never publicly shame them for what they don't know or what they choose to do and with, with the intentions of trying to help our people, right? Right. So that came from reading that book, so I got to go over there to pay homage to that, man. So I'm excited about that. Man, it's dope. And I want to thank you yet again, man, for, you know, not only taking the time to come here today and discuss your testimony or or give your testimony, uh, but actually going through it, finding the lessons in the darkness and not only using it for your own benefit, but actually taking it down for others to benefit from it as well. Like, I think, you know, it needs to be more of that. You dig what I'm saying? I appreciate you, bro. I salute you, I appreciate you, and I support you. Now, another tradition here at Expeditiously (laughs) is we we must expound upon a word Mm. of the week. Word of the week. Yeah. Now, the word of the week is usually... Something that is uh, a derivative of the conversation. Uh, And I felt that this word was befitting, given your journey Mm. and the journey of others in similar positions. Mm. Um, Now, you talk about it a lot, and it's not, you know, one of my more difficult, more more sophisticated words, but it's relevant to Mm. the discussion. I want to make sure people understand what you are talking about and not assume. Mm. That word is atonement. Mm. Yes. The definition, the definition of atonement is reparation for an offense or injury. Um, I think it can also be correlated into accountability. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I'm going to use it in a sentence for the people who, you know what I'm saying, might want to, you know, take it uh, take it to work tomorrow, man, try it with their friends. <laughs> the inspirational author and lecturer, Shaka Senghor, wanted to find a way to make atonement for his sins after reading a letter from his son. Mm. So, there it is. That was the word of the week. It is atonement. 
some of you guys, man, should really like, you know what I'm saying, process it. Okay. Use it in a sentence. Make yourself seem fancy. Yeah. But even more so, read a book. Yeah. Read two. Just take some, even if you don't read the whole book, man, just split your Instagram time <laughs> in half. Right. Half the time you spend on the gram, man, open the book and enlighten yourself because yeah. it's a lot of experiences that we've been deprived given our circumstances and, um, we, we we really need to compensate for, for the lack of physical experience with opening our minds to new cultures. Mm. And I appreciate you again, Shaka. Man, appreciate you for having me, bro. Man, thanks Real for joining talk. us here expeditiously. Um, we This will not be the last time. I'm sure we'll find some other enlightening sure. things to do together to help That's the real, cause. Bro. And uh, I congratulate you on your 10-year on your, your mark. Appreciate that, man. Yeah. It's a big thing. I'm excited to celebrate it. So, me, you, yeah. and Chef Jeff. We'll Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Hey, man. man. Thank y'all for listening. This has been Expedition. Thanks for listening to Expeditiously with me, T.I.P. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts and Podcast One and rate and review, please. Expeditiously is produced, engineered, and edited by K.C. Morris. What matters when you start a business is you and your idea, not when you start it. So if you make up your mind and go for it, GoDaddy has all the help and tools you need to bring it online. Start today at GoDaddy.com because open, we stand.